Before we do, we're going to share a few prayer requests and a few announcements. Let me begin with the announcements. Uh, we have our Go and Do Coat Drive still going on. Uh, you can still bring uh, winter weather items in for that event. We will be distributing those on Saturday, and as far as I know, there are, there are still needs for volunteers to help set up on Friday night and to help distribute on Saturday. You can actually go online and um, indicate or go online and volunteer or go to the Involvement Center and vol volunteer to be a part of those efforts if you're, if you're willing and available. Uh, in addition to that, we have our fall festival coming up on Saturday, October 30th. The fall festival will be from 3 to 6 p.m. here at the building. And it is uh, a great opportunity to invite uh, friends to, to, to come. There's going to be a lot of activities, a lot of games. The last hour of it will feature a trunk or treat, uh, which is especially important because Halloween is following, falling on Sunday night, and so uh, uh, some kids won't necessarily have the opportunity to go trick-or-treating, or at least my daughter won't. So uh, make sure to come out, join us for the fall festival and the trunk-or-treat, which is part of it, and to make plans to join us on Saturday, October 30th uh, for that. There are flyers available here in the lobby on the round glass table that you can take to pass out to friends, family, and family members, and neighbors. And if you plan on handing out candy for the trunk-or-treat portion of the fall festival, then we ask that you park your car in the lower parking lot. Uh, there will be two rows dedicated specifically to that, uh, but it, we intend to have the whole, the whole fall festival, the whole event down in our lower parking lot, um, and, and we have specially reserved places for the cars to park. So please make plans for that. One other announcement, there will be a Korean appreciation banquet on Saturday, November 6th from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. in the Fellowship Hall. And this is where the, uh, the, the Blue Tree ESL class that Mingu teaches every week, they, their students are going to extend their appreciation to our congregation by preparing and sharing a traditional Korean meal that day. If you would like to attend, then please sign up out here at the Involvement Center, or, or you can, I think, sign up online as well. But that appreciation banquet that they're going to put on for us is on Saturday, November 6th from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. down in the Fellowship Hall. Those are the, uh, the, the upcoming events and announcements that we have, but we do have a few prayer requests that we want to mention. Matt Lane is on a ventilator due to COVID pneumonia, so please keep him in your prayers. Carrie is supposed to be able to go to the hospital tonight to finally see him and speak to a doctor. She uh, has, uh, uh, hasn't been able to go up there for some time, so... Please keep Matt and Carrie in your prayers and uh, remember them at this time. Also, Sophie Robinson called today because her daughter-in-law, Kristen Burr, was admitted to the ICU in Melbourne, Florida after experiencing some serious health issues. And Sophie and Stephanie are traveling to be with her and are requesting our prayers for her. Again, that's Kristen Burr, the daughter-in-law of Sophie Robinson. Please keep her in your prayers. And uh, that is it for the health updates that I have. So let us begin tonight by going to God in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight grateful for the opportunity to study and grateful for this place where we can gather and assemble. And Lord, we ask for your blessings tonight as we engage in an, uh, an examination of your son's life and help us to uh, grow in our knowledge and familiarity with him, his life, his ministry, and help us deepen our appreciation for what he's done for us. Lord, as we gather here, it's an opportune time for us to lift up in prayer some individuals and situations that are dear to our heart. And right now, Lord, we especially are mindful of Matt Lane as he is battling COVID, and we pray that the uh, medical treatments he is receiving and the professionals who are attending to him will be able to help him fight off this virus and that he might be able to come off of that ventilator soon. Uh, we, we pray to be with Carrie as it's been difficult for her to not be able to uh, see him or, or, or be with him. Uh, and so we ask for your blessings on, on, on Matt and Carrie right now. Please help him to recover and, and help him to, to uh, beat the virus and, and be able to go home soon. We are also mindful of uh, so Sophie Robinson's daughter-in-law, Kristen Burr, and the issues that she's dealing with, the, the health concerns that have arisen. 
And uh, we pray that she will receive uh, the treatment she needs in, in the hospital. We pray that she will be able to um, uh, recover. And we pray that she will be with Sophie and Stephanie as they travel uh, down there to, to be with their family. Lord, we, we lift up these individuals to you knowing that you're the great physician knowing that uh, you are the creator of the human body, so you know it's better than anyone else. And so we ask that your hand of healing be involved with them. Lord, we ask for your blessings also on our our ministries, uh, particularly our go-and-do ministries that involve the coat drive and the the fall festival and these these, uh, efforts that we have to connect with our community and to help our community. May uh, may, May they be successful at that, and may we continue... Uh, to um, grow our emphasis on, on helping others and reaching out to others, and, and may it uh, produce fruit for you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for sending Jesus to die for us. It is through his name that we pray. Amen. With that, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to... Um, oh, i got to remember which gospel I wanted us to go to. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Last week we began studying about the temptation of Jesus. We did not conclude that study and, and that um, particular subject, so we're going to finish that up this week and introduce our next topic, which is also going to take us half of this week and then next week to complete. But we want to focus tonight on finishing our study of the baptism of Jesus. And I just want to, as a Pressure, read Matthew's account of this very quickly. It's Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, we we spent a lot of time on the baptism last week, but we didn't get to this very big question that I want to start with tonight, and that that is, why was Jesus baptized? That's always the question that people want to ask and ponder and reflect on when we study the baptism of Jesus. Because when you think about Jesus, the one, one thing you absolutely know about Jesus is that he was sinless. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, all of those passages lay claim to Jesus' sinlessness. So why then did he need to be, need a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, to use the terminology that appears in Mark chapter 1 and verse 4? Why does he need that? Well, let's consider some reasons. And the first reason is directly pulled from the Matthew 3 passage we just read. The, the reason Jesus himself gave is identified, is stated, is quoted in Matthew chapter 3, and it's to fulfill all righteousness. That's a very beautiful statement, but what does it mean? What does Jesus mean when he says to fulfill all righteousness? That's his reason for being baptized. That's what he says to John, and and it was enough for John to, to consent to the baptism, to no longer stand kind of in opposition to it. But what does that mean? I like the way one commentator said it. He said, to fulfill all righteousness means to complete everything that forms a part of a relationship of obedience to God. So ultimately, when Jesus says to fulfill all righteousness, he's referencing to some capacity that the reason he needs to do this has to do with obedience to God. One thing we know about Jesus is that his entire life on this earth, he was surrendering to the will of God. We see that particularly in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying, and though he's asking for an alternative to his, the, the means of, of obtaining salvation for mankind, 
He's in complete surrender to the will of God when he says, not my will, but yours be done. And and so Jesus' entire ministry is surrendering to the will of God, obedient to the will of God. And when he says to fulfill all righteousness, that's a large part of what he means here. And I think something that can help us grasp that is something Jesus says to the um, uh, Pharisees and scribes in Luke chapter 7 and verse 30. On a, he, he's, he's in one of his usual um, encounters with the Pharisees and scribes where, where, they're, where they're challenging him and things like that. And if you skip over to Luke chapter 7 and verse 30, uh, this is what he goes on to say to them. Pull it up as well because I didn't have it typed in. There's this little parenthetical statement. This isn't actually, I, I set this up like Jesus said it, and I was incorrect for doing so because this is a parenthetical statement that Luke inserts in verse 29 and 30 of, of chapter 7 after Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Jesus is in a debate. With, uh, with these, um, wait, I'm sorry, I'm quoting from the wrong passage, right? Or I'm, I'm referencing the wrong passage in my setup. He's talking about John because John's messengers have come while John's in prison and, and asked, hey, is, are you the one? And now Jesus speaks about the greatness of John. And it's interesting because Luke has this little aside, this little parenthetical statement where he says this, verse 29 and 30 of Luke 7, When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. I find that phrase so very interesting. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves, chose not to be baptized by John. To fulfill all righteousness is what Jesus said the reason for the baptism was. But then you skip over to Luke chapter 7 and you find out that the, the religious leaders of the day rejected God's purpose for themselves when they chose not to be baptized by John. I think there's a, a correlation between these two statements that if Jesus wasn't baptized by John, then he's rejecting something of God's purpose. And so Jesus was so dedicated to staying in the center of the will of God, as, as one commentator said, that he understood that John's baptism was a part of that will. Jesus does this to fulfill righteousness, to be obedient to the will of God and not reject it like the Pharisees and the scribes did. But I think we can also look at Jesus' baptism and say there's, a, there's more to it than just that one statement, more to the reason he was baptized. I think it's also to connect his ministry with John's ministry. See, Jesus deliberately chose to be baptized by John. And in so doing, he identifies or associates himself with John's message and, and with the efforts the ministry that John started. Think about this. There's this neat, no, I shouldn't say neat. There's this interesting interaction that Jesus has with the chief priests and elders of the people over in Matthew chapter 21. I want to read it, and it's a few verses long. It's Matthew 21, verse 23 through 32. I think I've got it on the screen. And there's a parable mixed into it. Here's what happens. He entered the temple. The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. His question was this in verse 25. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And the chief priests and the elders of the people discussed among themselves, and they came to the conclusion that if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So, verse 27, they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He then launched into the parable of the two sons. 
Verse 28, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And that son answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Jesus criticizes the chief priests and the elders of the people because they refused to believe John. They rejected John, and Jesus is criticizing them for that here. This whole scenario does set up another understanding of that to fulfill all righteousness, that obedience uh, context that we were just talking about. But I find it very interesting that no one could level this criticism against Jesus. No one could ever say that he rejected John, that he didn't believe John. Think about it. If Jesus was never baptized by John, then someone could level that accusation against him. Someone could say, well, you weren't baptized by John. That must mean you didn't actually believe him or else you would have. I mean, Jesus, Jesus might come back and say, well, I've never sinned. I don't need it. It was for a baptism for repent, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I haven't sinned. I don't need it. They would laugh in his face. They would call that blasphemous. So Jesus connects himself with John. Jesus avoids any accusation of rejection of John, of not believing John by being baptized. I'm not saying that's the primary reason he was baptized, but I'm just pointing out, based on the teaching of Jesus, that that connection to John's ministry is worth mentioning. And now, I just lost my notes. One second here. There they are. Thank you. Now, a third thing I want to point out about this why Jesus was baptized, I think we can also look at it as a fulfillment of his role as a mediator. So you can notice in passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, Jesus is referred to as the one mediator between God and men. Over in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, and chapter 12 and verse 24, he's identified as the mediator of the new covenant. Being a mediator was one of Jesus' primary functions. And so I think it's also worth pointing out that since John's baptism was associated with the forgiveness of sins, as we talked about last week, according to Mark chapter 1 and verse 4, and since Jesus himself had never personally sinned, could there be some way in which, I'm not saying his baptism paid for sins, obviously that occurred at his death, but could there be some sense in which as the mediator, as the one bridging the gap between God and man, by being baptized, he's fulfilling that function in, in association with his own death and his resurrection. Um, I'm trying to find the quote that I, was, I wanted to reference here. So this is, this is what one scholar wrote. Since John's baptism was bound up with the forgiveness of sins, and no personal sin is involved in Jesus' case, we can conclude that the baptism was the first public step taken in the direction of bearing the sins of the people. He's not saying the baptism was how the sins were buried, uh, were born by Jesus, but that it was a step in the direction of Jesus accomplishing that on the cross. So maybe there's a sense in which the baptism can be associated with his role as a mediator. I should also say maybe it's associated with his role as high priest. And it's been pointed out that uh, in, in the uh, Old Testament, priests were purified by the washing of water prior to representing the people before God, particularly in the most holy place. And so maybe there's a connection here to Jesus' function as our sympathizing high priest as referenced in Hebrews chapter 2. Maybe we can find within, this, the within the theology of what's happening here a sense in which Jesus is fulfilling that function that would be finalized when he's 
sacrificed on the cross when he fulfills the high priestly role. But one other thing I want to mention, maybe as we consider why he was baptized, maybe we could say it was to initiate his formal ministry. In some capacity, the baptism served as an initiation of Jesus' public ministry. If you look at Mark chapter 1 and verse 1, it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and then it launches immediately into the baptismal account, skipping everything that preceded it. One author said this appears to be a formal installment and commissioning when Jesus is baptized. We're also told over in Luke chapter 3 and verse 23 that Jesus was about 30 years of age when he came to John to be baptized. And, and it's been pointed out that this was the age when Levites began their service at the temple and was evidently regarded as the age at which a man was fully mature. And so it may be that, this, that the baptism also fulfills this of initiating the ministry of Jesus, that this is the start of his public work. Now, I'm not trying to take away from Jesus' own statement to fulfill all righteousness. That's the reason he was baptized. I'm trying to point out that there could be a, a lot more to this baptism and its purpose than we might initially see. Uh, Sellers S. Crane, who authored the Truth For Today commentary on the book of Matthew, I think he summarized this best when he wrote these words. He said, while the precise meaning of the phrase to fulfill all righteousness is debated, the following points concerning Jesus in his baptism are certain. That he obeyed God's will. He sanctioned John's ministry and baptism. He set an example for others to follow. He humbly identified with sinners. He began his ministry, which would culminate in his death in order to justify sinners. And he was revealed to John as the Messiah, and therefore John revealed him to Israel. In, in other words, what... Sellers Crane trying to communicate is that there are many uh, reasons that you could ascertain as to why Jesus was baptized. Ultimately, it's to fulfill all righteousness, but it accomplished so very much more, and it's worth mentioning those things. Now, if that wasn't convoluted enough for you, let's keep going. Because I want to finally, one last thing about the baptism is consider the three phenomena that occur at his baptism. There are three things that happen, according to Matthew's account in particular, that are worth mentioning because they were unique to his baptism. Can anybody guess what the first phenomena was, or phenomenon was? Matthew chapter 3, uh, for, focused on verse... Um, 16 and 17. Phenomenon. The heavens were opened. Think about that. The, the heavens were opened, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. If I were to tell you that the heavens opened today, what would you think that means? Rain. I don't think that's what it's referring to here. Something unique, something possibly even miraculous is happening when the heavens open here. Something def definitive and, and special happened with the heavens opening in this scenario. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it was the first phenomenon. I don't want to dwell too much on that one. But it is the, this, this language of the heavens opening is a feature common to experiences of God's revelation. Whether it be the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 1, or Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 1, or even in the New Testament in Acts chapter 7 verse 56 with Stephen, who saw the heavens open. Uh, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 11, and over in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. So you have this language that seems to be common to experiences of, of, of God's revelation. The, other, the next phenomenon, the second one, is the, and I forgot to click ahead, is the Holy Spirit descending on him in bodily form like a dove. Now the descent of the Holy Spirit, first thing you need to know is it fulfilled prophecy. 
Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and him my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1, which is an oft-quoted um, prophecy, even by Jesus himself, that proved he was the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. All of those passages have a reference to the Spirit of the Lord being upon the Messiah. And so there is a degree to which the descent of the Holy Spirit here at Jesus' baptism is fulfilling prophecy. But there is one little question that people like to debate, and that is, did the Holy Spirit actually the form of a dove, or was his descent reminiscent of a dove's descent? This is one of those questions that's, I don't know how significant it is to ponder. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16 uh, and Mark chapter 2 and verse 10, they leave open the possibility that the Spirit's descent mimicked a dove. And Luke is more specific. He says the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Whether or not it's specifically a dove... I don't know that it really matters. But people like to talk about that. Here's what I think is important. The descent of the Holy Spirit marked, in my opinion, the beginning of Jesus' miraculous abilities on the earth. I want you to go over to Acts chapter 10 with me. Because in Acts chapter 10, Peter made a connection between the descent of the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism, and his power. This is in the midst of a sermon he preached at Cornelius' house. Acts chapter 10, verse 37 and 38, Peter said, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. It's interesting, that language, and with power. There's a lot of fake gospels that try to tell of Jesus' miraculous ability when he was a child. Like the Gospel of Thomas is a great example of this. And the Gospel of Thomas has stories about how Jesus would make the earth appear from nowhere. It also has stories about how Jesus pushed a kid off of a roof, I think was one of them, and killed the kid. There's this desire to interject miraculous things into the life of Jesus as a child, ultimately to fill in the gap of those who don't have much information. I'll continue my thought, but let me let Mr. Iverson jump in. Say because I can remember growing up uh, witnessing some of those things, and even even today, I think most of us would agree that we still have faith groups. Would think the only way you can receive the Spirit is for something to hit you, or you must have some uh, miraculous experience. That's true. So as I'm talking about this passage in particular, we have, we have Jesus here 
who's going to have the Spirit descend. And then you have Peter preaching in Acts chapter 10 saying that not only uh, was Jesus anointed with the Holy Spirit at his baptism, but also with power. And we have to remember, um, Philippians 2 tells us that when uh, uh, that Jesus emptied himself, he gave up some divine privileges in order to become human. We, can, uh, we know for certain that he gave up uh, the, the ability to be omnipresent when he became human. He couldn't be everywhere all at once. Wherever his physical body was, that's where he was. And we don't start seeing him defy the laws of physics as far, far as the space-time continuum until uh, really his resurrection. We see him defy the law of physics as far as gravity and things like that, particularly when he's walking on water, but he's still a physical body in one place at one time. And so he emptied himself of omnipresence. We also know that he emptied himself of immortality. When he took on human flesh, he took on the possibility of death and eventually succumbed to it. So there were some divine privileges that Jesus gave up. And it may be that one of those divine privileges he gave up in order to become human was omnipotence, the ability to do everything, at least until God anointed him with that ability again. I'm not trying to say that, our, that Jesus was not omnipotent. I'm not trying to say that Jesus was not God. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to communicate that there seems to be some evidence that in Scripture that his ability to perform miracles began when he received power at his baptism. And it's interesting to me, when you get to um, uh, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 28, Jesus is contending with the Pharisees particularly about casting out demons. They're claiming that he's casting out demons by Beelzebul. And he says, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He references the Spirit of God as the reason, as the source of his ability to cast out demons. And it was the Spirit of God that descended on him when he was baptized. Jesus' ministry is one of power. We see him perform miraculous things consistently. But it seems, well, you're, you will not find a miracle that preceded his baptism. And so it may be one other significant thing about his baptism is it may have marked when he received the ability to perform miracles. The last thing, the last uh, phenomenon that we need to mention is the voice. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17 makes reference to the voice from heaven which said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God here voices his approval and pride in his son's actions. Now, this is not the only time God will do this. He'll actually do it at least two more times. Do you know when the other two occasions were that God spoke a message like this audibly? The Mount of Transfiguration, which uh, uh, after Jesus was transfigured, uh, God spoke and said almost identical terminology to this. Matthew chapter 17 is where that's recorded. Does anybody know this, the other occasion? Matthew, John 12, 28. That is correct. Jesus enters the last week of his life. He comes off of his triumphal entry. He enters Jerusalem, and, and he himself, he says this, Now is my soul troubled. This is verse 27. And what shall I say? Father, he prays. Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And that's when God speaks. And God communicates in John chapter 12 and verse 28. And he says in this particular instance, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. It's not the same statement. It's not a statement of approval, 
but it's an audible communication that shows this connection between the Father and the Son. And that's significant. It God speaks in an audible fashion. A voice speaks from heaven on some significant events in the life of Jesus. His baptism, his transfiguration, and his entrance into Jerusalem on the final week of his life. So it's, that's worth recognizing. Mike. Yeah. So that brings up the, the next thing I wanted to kind of talk about. How many people heard these voices or even under, heard this voice or even understood it? It's interesting because I've always been of the mindset that John heard the voice when he baptized Jesus, that at least John heard the voice. But I'm not 100% certain that it was audible like that. See, my assumption is, oh, it's recorded in Scripture, and so someone besides Jesus heard it and was able to tell us about it later. And I, feel, I figure that's a pretty reasonable thing to, to say. But, of course, Scripture is inspired, so therefore it's not necessarily, it does not necessarily require firsthand witness for everything it records. Think about it. Who had the knowledge of Jesus' time in the wilderness when he was tempted to record a first-hand account of that? Who was there with him to record that as a first-hand account? No one. So there are some events in the life of Jesus that obviously didn't have a first-hand witness to record it, and maybe even uh, the, the voice at these events uh, could not record a first-hand account because, as Mike points out in John chapter 12, uh, the voice sounded like thudder, thunder. Now, it goes on to say that others thought an angel spoke to him. And then Jesus responds, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. He doesn't explain what the voice says. He just points out that the voice spoke almost in the sense of, of confirmation, almost in the sense of, uh, uh, I don't want to say approval here, but... but um, to demonstrate God's backing of Jesus or God's association with Jesus or to serve as evidence of who Jesus is. So it's, it's interesting, though, because when we go to John chapter 1 and John recounts his experience of the baptism, it's in verses 29 through 34 that John... No, I'm sorry, it's not... Did I get, yeah, in verse 29 through 34, John is telling his disciples about Jesus. And he says, this is he, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And he says, I, I didn't know him. I came baptizing with water and, and, and I, he's, he communicates that when Jesus came to him, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. I reference that because he never says, Oh, and I heard this voice. I saw and I heard confirmation that this is the Son. It, all he speaks about is what he saw. So I'm, I'm left wondering, did John hear the voice? Because Matthew, Mark, nor Luke, nor John record that he heard it. So I, I'm left uncertain about that. But it is interesting. I wonder if at Jesus' baptism, if it sounded like thunder, like it did in John 12. Who knows if we would be able to recognize the voice of God even if it did speak. I've often uh, wondered about that. What's, did John As we would hear a voice, I, I have a tendency to say yes. <laughs> that John, being who he was, he, he did hear a voice. He saw the dove. Well, you know, why not come to the conclusion? 
And just because it's not mentioned in Scripture doesn't mean he right, didn't. Right, right. It's, I'm, I'm just wanting to point out that no mention of it is made in Scripture. No mention of, of anyone hearing this voice is made in Scripture, but that doesn't mean that they didn't. So I, I'm sorry if I gave the impression I was speaking from silence. So it's just fascinating. But here's the thing, uh, Billy, let me let you, let you jump in before I keep going. That God gives some sort of visible demonstration of his approval uh, or his, yeah, support of what Jesus is doing. Excuse me. One, one final thing to say about the phenomenon that appear here, and that is that this is one of those moments in Scripture where all three parts of the Trinity, of the Godhead, are present together. You have Jesus the Son in physical form being baptized. You have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and you have the voice of God speaking from heaven. So all three parts of the Godhead are involved in this one scene. And you don't have many of those in Scripture where you can pick out all three's um, involvement in something like that. So it's worth pointing out. We've spent any final thoughts, comments, observations, debates, ridicules, arguments about this, the baptism before we move on, I accept all forms of communication. So the remaining time that we have, I want to turn our attention to the next event in the life of Jesus, and that is his temptation. And we're going to spend time tonight and next week on this particular subject because it, like the baptism, warrants a lot of conversation. And I want to start out by, by, well, reading the temptation texts. We're going to start with Mark, because it is the most concise and the shortest. It's Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now let's go over to Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Matthew records it this way, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now let's do Luke's account. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it is delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall not worship, excuse me, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and sent, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself 
from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. I know it can be redundant to read all of those accounts because they are so similar, but there are such unique variances between them in a negative sense, just gives little details. Like Mark tells us he was with the wild animals. None of the other, Matthew and Luke don't mention that. And I'm left wondering, why was that so significant to Mark that he included it? And what animals was he with? And notice, he's out there with the wild animals. That's a temptation to eat right there, more so than the rocks, if you ask me. I don't think Stan Burnett could do it. Out there with the wild animals, hungry. And then you have Matthew make a comment about angels ministering to him. He's the only one that mentions that. You also have Luke. Luke switches the order of the temptations from Matthew. So you have these little differences. So that's why I read, read every passage for the sake of our study, if you're ever wondering that. But let's dive into the temptation for a moment. Tonight, I just want to focus on what I'm calling the details, the, the pieces of information that we glean just from the opening verses of this story. And next week, we'll dive into more of the the theological factors in discussion. But the first thing I want us to notice, we're going to appeal to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to highlight things from the first two verses of Luke. The first thing I notice is that Luke says when he returned from the Jordan. If you journey back into the third chapter of Luke, you'll learn in verse 3 that John the Baptist went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So we spent time last week examining the possible locations of where Luke, excuse me, where John the Baptist was baptizing on the Jordan River. But regardless of where he was, all we need to know is that he's around the Jordan and Jesus is returning from the Jordan. We have to put this in the context of time. Jesus is immediately leaving from his baptism to enter the wilderness for his temptation. Doesn't that seem like a really inopportune time for the temptation? He just initiated his ministry with his baptism. Wouldn't it have been a lot better if he could have gotten the wheels turning first? Couldn't he have gone and picked out his apostles first? Couldn't he have done a few uh, campaigns first, gotten a few sermons under his belt, got a few miracles out of the way? It's very interesting to me that this is happening in such close proximity to the, to the baptism. In fact, in every one of the Gospels that mentions the temptation, it occurs immediately after the baptism. And I think that is worth mentioning. Because it does demonstrate to me a way in which Jesus can relate to us. And here's what I mean. Jesus experienced one of his greatest seasons of trial immediately after experiencing one of his greatest moments of spiritual triumph. One of his peak moments in his life, his baptism, when the Father speaks, one of the three times the Father spoke audibly like that. It's a spiritually high moment in the life of Jesus, immediately followed by one of the most spiritually difficult moments. We can relate to that. It reminds me of David. Shortly after defeating the giant, he finds himself living in the wilderness as a fugitive fleeing from Saul. It reminds me of Elijah. Immediately after Elijah's success on Mount Carmel, he finds himself despondently hiding in a cave because he's running from Ahab and Jezebel. I like the way one commentator made this connection. He said this, It is no coincidence that Jesus' temptation immediately follows his baptism. Many of God's people have had similar experiences. Right after conversion or some other significant spiritual event, precisely when a certain level of victory or maturity seems to have been attained, temptations resume more strongly than ever. So I think the timing of the temptation makes Jesus' experience that much more relatable because he's enduring 
the temptation in the aftermath of a spiritually high moment, which can often be when we are at our most vulnerable because we've developed some degree of overconfidence in our spiritual strength. So I think when we return from the Jordan, understanding how closely connected the temptation is to the baptism is, is worth mentioning because it's reminiscent of some of our own experiences in life. James. Great point. Now let's talk about the location. You know I love geography in this study so far. And here's one thing that's interesting. Of course, it mentions in the wilderness. When you hear that terminology, what do you picture? When you hear wilderness, what comes to mind? What do you imagine? You imagine barren wasteland. I don't know why, but, well, I'm, I think I do. Just growing up in the United States of America, when I think wilderness, I think forest. I know. I'm just, growing up, I always thought mountain ranges, never-ending forests, valleys, and cliffs, and beautiful landscape. That's how I always pictured it. Now, if you travel to uh, Israel today, and you want to uh, search out the traditional sites of things, you'll come across the traditional location of the Mount of Temptation. And there's a nice monastery built up there. Whether or not this is the right location, we don't know. But once, to, once I discovered this, I thought it was fascinating. Because that's the mountain right there. That's where the monastery is placed that's where the traditional site of Jesus' temptation is said to have occurred. It's a pretty mountain, pretty little valley there with some nice farmland, some good agriculture going on. But here's what's fascinating to me. I'm about to show you a Google map looking down on this exact location. There will be a little red uh, marker indicating that mountain right there. Or I should say where the monastery is on that mountain. Let me see if I can help you out here. Right here is the monastery. You can't see it on this picture or on this screen that well. That's where it's located. And this Google map is about to show you a marker for that monastery. That red dot is where that monastery is. So if you climb over that mountain and head westward, look at what you got. If this was, in fact, where Jesus went for his temptation, Emily is exactly right. That is barren wasteland. Google Earth shows you that there is nothing there. All the green is on the east side of that mountain, and all the desert on the west side. And actually, the uh, community you see, the buildings you see, that's all part of Jericho. The traditional site is associated with the city of Jericho, which lends credence to any uh, belief of Jesus' baptism happening on the Jordan River in the southern territory in the area of Judah, or Judea, I should say, down near the Dead Sea, because that would make more sense for Jesus to leave that part of the Jordan River and head over here. But again, we don't know if this is the correct location. I just want us to have an idea in our minds of what the wilderness looked like for Jesus. Now, imagine surviving in that kind of land days and 40 nights without eating. So Jesus has gone to the wilderness. Let me back up to this real quick. That's where he's experiencing this whole situation as I get this to come up. And it's fascinating what's significant about the wilderness. Is there any significance to the concept of wilderness in Scripture? Absolutely. This correlates to the experience 
of the Israelites coming out of Egypt. And they're going to spend decades wandering through the wilderness before they're allowed entry into the promised land. And so this wilderness location, it recalls those wanderings of the Israelites in the wilderness for an extended period of time. And and it's worth pointing out that in hindsight, you can see where the, the Israelites, during their time in the wilderness, they're unfaithful to God. But now Jesus, in his time in the wilderness, remains faithful to God. And of course, that sets us up for the time period that Jesus is in this wilderness, the 40 days. Of course, the number 40 corresponds to the number of years that the Israelites were in the wilderness. But there are also some other events that the number 40 can correlate to, in particular, the 40 days Jesus spent in the wilderness fasting. It recalls the 40-day fasts of a couple of Old Testament figures, such as Moses, who fasted for 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai while he received the law from God. Exodus chapter 34 and verse 28 makes mention of that. And then there's Elijah. He fasted for 40 days and nights when he was fleeing from Jezebel, Jezebel after he defeated the prophets of Baal. 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 8. So there are also these key figures in the Old Testament that conducted 40-day fasts. And when you think about Moses and Elijah, where do they fit into the story of Jesus, Mount Transfiguration? Ben. That's a great point, and it's also interesting because Matthew almost makes it sound like the temptations don't start until the 40th day, whereas what you're saying, he's tempted the whole time. And, and that's interesting to me because Luke's almost sounds like it was just, he's out there just 40 days, and when the 40 days were done, he came home. Um, but Luke also makes it sound so much more difficult and so, so, so much more frequent with the temptations. So that's a, that's a great point, a great observation on the differences between the text and, again, why I like to read all, all the text on a particular event in the life of Jesus. And so we have Jesus out there nights. Moses and Elijah, as Ben was talking about with the Transfigurate, Mount of Transfiguration. It's also interesting that um, Moses and Elijah are the key individuals who represented the Old Testament. So oftentimes Jesus himself would do this. He would refer to the Old Testament in its entirety as the law, and the prophets. Moses was the one who brought the law, and Elijah is often held up as the, the great prophet. Even though he was not a writing prophet like others, he's held up as, as one of the premier prophets and often um, associated with those texts. And uh, they, they also were key messianic forerunners. Uh, whose return was often expected with the arrival of the Messiah. The the return of an Elijah-like figure is especially prophesied in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5 and fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist. And the return of a Moses-like figure was inferred by the Jewish people from Moses' statement in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 18 that God would raise up a prophet like me from among you. And so Jesus' association with Moses and Elijah carried with it the implication that he was the Messiah. 
So even here in his temptation, there is this connection of him to these figures in the Old Testament that have a messianic bearing on his identity. There's much more for us to talk about with the temptation, which we will do next week, so I hope you'll be able to join us. Thank you for your, your attention and your participation, and I pray that you have a blessed week. Let's close out with a quick word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for our study tonight, and it is our prayer that we will all be able to travel home safely and uh, that we'll be able to gather again here on, uh, on Sunday to worship and study your word. Lord, in the, in the interim, Lord, help us to represent you well in, in the world around us. Help us to be uh, your image bearers in every sense of the term, and may we represent Christ the way that he intends for us to. We love you, Lord, and it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.